Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. Is it offensive? You tell me. Oh, oh, really? Oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, Pocahontas? Crooked Hillary. Crooked Hillary. Because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. This is what a feminist looks like! Show me what a feminist looks like! The president is not America. We America. Our motto is when they go low, we go high. Kellyanne Conway, Kellyanne. This is suggesting sexual assault. That's a very unfortunate phrase, and people really should stop using that. Why? Because I know him better, and I know better. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. And this monster that was on stage with uh, Mike Pence, who destroyed her last night, by the way. Suburban women, they should like me more than anybody here tonight. The women who they say don't like me, they actually do like me a lot. I recognize that my dad's communication style is not to everyone's taste. And I know that his tweets can feel a bit unfiltered. This is America Unfiltered, a fresh, raw look at American politics, foreign policy, and media. With me, Liam Kennedy in Dublin. And with me, Scott Lucas in Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Women secured the right to vote in the U.S. just over 100 years ago. Yet significant gender gaps remain in American politics and in many realms of American society. What is at stake for women in the coming U.S. election? To help us answer this question, America Unfiltered hosted a discussion with three distinguished professors who have researched and written about women's diverse roles in American political culture and representation. Melissa Deckman is the Louis L. Goldstein Professor of Public Affairs and Chair of the Political Science Department at Washington College. Professor Deckman's areas of speciality include gender, religion, and political behavior. She's the author of Tea Party Women, Mama Grizzlies, Grassroots Leaders, and the Changing Face of the American Right. Sherry Lee Lincoln is a professor of English and American Studies at Georgetown University. Her research focuses on social class and higher education, deindustrialization, and contemporary working class literature. Professor Lincoln's latest book, The Half-Life of Deindustrialization, examines early 21st century working class narratives. She was the founding president of the Working Class Studies Association, and she edits a weekly blog, Working Class Perspectives. Diana Negra is Professor of Film Studies and Screen Culture at University College Dublin. She's the author or editor of 12 books, including the forthcoming Interrogating We in the Age of I, Romance and Social Bonding in Contemporary Culture. Professor Negra's work in media, gender, and cultural studies has been widely influential, and she serves as co-editor-in-chief of Television and New Media. I began by asking Melissa Deckman about women's activism in the wake of President Trump's election. 
What have been the major indicators of women's activism over the last four years? And how does she see it having an impact on the election? that one uh, area where we see lots of evidence of more women being engaged in politics is really with respect to women as political candidates. So in 2018, for example, that election broke nearly all records in terms of women's major party candidacies for Congress. For the U.S. House, 476 women ran um, for office that year. That was a 59% increase. And uh, interviews with women who ran for the first time in many of these election cycles uh, indicate that it was really a direct result of Hillary Clinton's loss and the election of Donald Trump, certainly. Um, But another way that women have been more engaged in politics since Trump's election is when it comes to more overall levels of political engagement. So in one area, for instance, you see women getting highly involved in the resistance to Donald Trump. Um, Many of you are probably aware of the very heavily attended Women's March that was held the day after Trump's election. This led to really a resurgence in political activism among largely white, uh, middle-aged, college-educated women. That's where you saw the greatest surge in political engagement. They were involved in terms of organizing at the local level, giving more money to political causes, um, and really learning about how to navigate local politics in ways that we hadn't seen before, which is really interesting. The last area, though, that I wanted to focus on is really with Gen Z women. And so one interesting distinction, a lot of the studies looking at um, women in the resistance, typically, again, middle-aged to maybe close to retirement women, are showing that those women aren't necessarily Um, as liberal or progressive as younger women. And my research is finding that Gen Z women in particular are heavily engaged in politics. In fact, they're far more engaged in politics than young men, which is a historic first in American politics. These women, unlike the women in the resistance, I would say, um, are very progressive. Um, They, they of course, have been socialized um, during Trump's presidency. In political science, we call this the impressionable years. So that late teens, early adults, those sort of formative political experiences will have lasting implications for for the rest of their lives. Um, And talking with a lot of these Gen Z women, they often talk about the importance of role models. So the election of people like AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Congress, um, really had a galvanizing effect on a lot of these women who saw for the first time a woman that looked like, like that, which I think is a really interesting development. And it looks as though The polls are showing that we could see record levels of uh, voting by this young demographic, and they're heavily skewing to the political left. I just want to pick you up on that last point, because uh, we've been told for generations that young people don't vote, right? (laughs) We're told that in, in Western Europe, we're told that in the U.S. You seem to think that maybe that's changing. So in 2016, 40% of Gen Z Americans at the time, or, or, or Americans age 18 to 24 at the time, said that they definitely were going to vote in that election in, in 2016. And that pretty much was about the turnout rate for younger people in that election cycle. That's jumped more than 10 percentage points in this election cycle. So I think there is record levels of enthusiasm for voting among younger people. Just to say that I'm really interested in the sort of the cultural backdrop and the way in which um, Trump seems to have operated as an incredible spur for women's activism. And I think one of the things this election is going to show us is, you know, how um, effective some of that activism has been. 
And, and if I were to take a, a more sort of pessimistic view, I would wonder about its kind of its sustainability. And I say that partly because I think the conditions of everyday life for many people in America make it very difficult to make these kinds of political commitments. I do wonder, I'm not sure whether the activism that we've seen over the past couple of years is, is going to be sustainable over, over the long haul. But it's really clear to me that the crude politics of male dominance that, that, that Trump practices have been inspiring um, to lots of women. One other thing that I think is very interesting is that that under Trump, we've seen a real uh, sort of destigmatization of women's anger. And I think that's been the impetus for a lot of these collective movements. And um, that's been a very important source of, of, of kind of motivation is that that sense that, um, you know, women getting out in the streets and, and unapologetically expressing their sense of outrage. I don't think we had as much of that before Trump. So I guess we have to give him a bit of credit for that. And looking at young women's activism and levels of engagement, um, it's anger and it's really sort of these negative emotions about the state of the U.S. that is statistically um, driving them to be more engaged. That is not having the same impact with men. And my guess is if I did that analysis um, writ large with, with women across the country, probably something be something very similar. But definitely young women are very mad about the state of American politics. That negativity is actually fueling them to get more involved in politics. So I think that's a really good observation, Diane. Melissa has been talking primarily about people running for office and voting, but I want us not to miss in the U.S. landscape the activism that has come around things like the teacher strikes and marches that we've seen during the Trump years, which uh, much of it happening through a model of bargaining for the common good, where teachers are working with people in their communities to really try to fight back on a local basis against things that are happening nationally. So those are also forms of political activism that may or may not get people to the polls. And they aren't necessarily directly involved with electoral politics. But I think they're part of this sense of people and women in particular feeling that, you know, it's time to step up. Sherry, may I come right to you? Could you talk a little bit on the role of, of class in women's political uh, mobilities and identities? But we have to remember that uh, while we're living in the middle of both a, a hot election and a really challenging healthcare crisis, uh, the pandemic and the election are not the only things that have shaped women's political views economically in terms of class. Even before the pandemic, women made up the majority of the working class, and many of them don't fit the image that we have of the working class. You know, most of the time when people talk about working class, they picture a white guy in a hard hat and a literal blue collar. Uh, women workers are not in those kinds of jobs. They're overwhelmingly in service jobs. They're overwhelmingly in low wage jobs. Many of those jobs during the pandemic have turned out to be frontline jobs. Uh, three quarters of the jobs that have been deemed essential workers are held by women, uh, many of them in healthcare. Two thirds of grocery cashiers are women. Um, and across all of those kinds of jobs, there's a very high percentage of people of color. So women of color also make up a huge portion of the working class. And that put all of these people at a kind of risk. So for working class women, the pandemic has made significantly worse what was already a state of being far behind economically. For more middle-class and professional-class women, the pandemic has led to a very large-scale pattern of women leaving the workplace. Uh, something like 865,000 women left the workforce in September, four times as much as men did. And that happens for all of the reasons that have been true for women in economics for 
ever. <laughs> that is, uh, women tend to not only be primarily responsible for a lot of household, uh, household care, child care in particular, but they earn less. And so if a family is deciding who's going to give up their job because somebody has to stay home to make sure the kids can do their online schooling, it's going to be the woman in the household. And that will have long-term consequences. So what does all of this mean in terms of politics? I think for working class women, the politics are in some ways much more immediate. They're about things like the supplemental uh, funding that Congress had passed right at the beginning and has not been able to figure out no kind of stimulus bill have we been able to get through, but also in in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of uh, the quality of jobs, in terms of job security, all of those kinds of very immediate things are probably going to be much bigger issues for working class women. It's not that middle class and professional class women are not concerned about the pandemic, but they have, frankly, a little bit of luxury to be able to think a bit bigger. It's that pool of women that Trump is going after. You know, he keeps appealing, you know, suburban women, please like me. You know, that's the group he's going after. And he's not, he's wise to do that because it's a group that has in a number of elections responded well to campaigns that are about fear around terrorism, around crime. And that's really what he's pushing. It's much harder to say for working class women. They actually vote at a much lower rate. So, you know, the poorer people vote less often for all kinds of reasons. They've got very clear political issues, but it's really hard to say how much they're going to get out and show up at the polls. So um, building off of Sherry's great comments there that were very insightful, um, the only group of women voters currently in the polls who are supporting Donald Trump by a small majority are white women who are not college educated. So that's sort of part of Trump's overall base, right? It's with white, non-college educated folks. And with men, he has a very substantial lead among that demographic. What we're finding in the polling, though, is that women who have college uh, degrees, um, they were, of course, the backbone of the resistance, as I talked about earlier. They increasingly have become more democratic since Trump was elected in 2016. Um, Of course, women of color, very disproportionately are going to be breaking for Joe Biden in this election because they are essentially the backbone of the Democratic Party. You have very broad ranging interests in feminism and post-feminism. And this includes the topic, I think I'm right in saying, of conservative forms of Mm -hmm. post-feminism or what you recently termed plutocratic post-feminism. One of the the paradoxes of the recent sort of political history of the United States is that there are probably more women associated with Trump's government than there were with Obama's. And one of the things that that, that I think this this administration has done is it's deployed conservative figurehead women, Um, all of the press secretaries after Sean Spicer, Ivanka Trump, uh, Betsy DeVos, to try to decontaminate its misogyny. And I think it's done that at times uh, with a certain amount of success, although these moves should fool absolutely no one. Um, but so the, the, there's been a broader rise, I think, in, in female fronted anti-feminism. And, you know, obviously we come up to the Supreme Court, uh, you know, possible confirmation shortly, um, you know, which which might be a sort of a culmination of this. But I think the, the Trump government has furthered this and, and the style of political celebrity really centers on what we might even think of as anti-social justice feminism, which is a highly paradoxical formulation, you know, if, if ever there was one. But my own view is that there is a deep distaste in American public culture for white female authority. And it's very hard to move around that or beyond that. And um, 
that that distaste takes so many forms in popular culture. I mean, one form it's taken in the past uh, while has been with the emergence of the figure of the Karen, the sort of the, the white woman, you know, and, and one of the things that the Karen does, the complaining white woman, you know, of, of various kinds, but she's, her catchphrase is, you know, let me speak to your manager. Uh, but but there's an assumption built into this this archetype that the white woman who complains is is illegitimate and wrong and also that that um her bid for authority comes at others expense so i think these kinds of factionalist moves in american culture have been pretty successful um and 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 really you know kind of act against the the kind of the will toward toward collective um you know improvement and, and political um you know futurity that we would we would might look for so um again i come back to the point i started with which is that there's an awful lot to recover from here I was struck by Diane's uh, conversation about feminism and conservative feminism, whether that's even a possibility. So in my book on women in the Tea Party, I have a chapter, in fact, dedicated to this very topic. And I found a kind of a mixed variety of opinions among conservative women when it comes to feminism. For some, um, cons- feminism is too much, I think, intertwined with um, the abortion issue, right? So for many conservative women, they would never entertain being feminists because um, they are profoundly pro-life on that issue of, of abortion rights. For others who I think are more libertarian, they might even recognize some you know, discrimination against women in society, that sort of thing. But they often feel that government programs, for example, welfare programs that help women are paternalistic because women should be held to the same standards as men, right? So they oppose big government because they think women in this day and age should be able to get their own jobs and, and you know, and be able to, I think, move forward on that, on that front. And I think it comes down to, though, conservatives' viewpoints on the role of government are very different than liberals' viewpoints, right? Liberals would say, look, we have systematic racism to deal with. We have systematic sexism to deal with. And conservatives would say that it's individuals' choices that lead them to be in the circumstances in which they find themselves. And so I think many conservatives have a very, very different views of those sorts of of issues in society. But I do think it's come to a head because of the Me Too movement. I think the Me Too movement really was very revealing and angered lots of women uh, who I think maybe felt alone in saying that these sorts of experiences were only happening to them or they felt ashamed that they couldn't share these types of experiences, but finding out how really systematic and widespread um, that kind of misogynistic behavior was, coupled with a president using such misogynistic language, I think really has galvanized more women to talk about women's Uh, rights in ways they haven't seen really in decades. Do you believe that Kamala Harris is going to be successful in increasing the number of women of color to come and vote more than they did in previous elections? So that that speaks to the questions of empowerment you you were talking about, but also of role models, right? She's actually a really interesting choice in that way, because you get a woman on the ticket, you get a woman of color on the ticket, you get a woman of color who, by the way, is not only black, but also South Asian. Uh, So she represents all kinds of things. But she also is a former prosecutor. And for, you know, in terms of getting that sweet spot between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the more middle of the road, somewhat conservative wing of the Democratic Party, Kamala Harris actually fits really nicely in there. Language that's being utilized to describe both um, uh, politically um, um, white liberal women and black liberal women, uh, nasty is the word used to describe uh, Hillary Clinton by the President of the United States to be. And more recently, the President called um, uh, Kamala Harris a monster. 
Well, I think what we see in, in, in terms of Trump is, is um, his preference for, for women who don't speak very much. That's certainly often been true of Ivanka Trump. Um, and, and it was interesting in the vice presidential debate how much was made of Kamala Harris's ability, you know, through the, through the refrain of I'm speaking, you know, insist on her right to, to have a platform. But there's another form of influence that, that Trump has, has wielded that we haven't talked about enough, in my opinion, which is, you know, frankly, his, his rudeness. We've become habituated pretty quickly to a Twitter presidency, but we don't talk much about how our sort of, you know, affective and expressive culture, um, you know, particularly when run through social media, how, you know, how normalized the, the, the sort of the, the, the use of demeaning and, and childlike um, speech and, and disordered thought and sort of flagrant anti-intellectualism anti has become in a relatively short time. And I suppose one of the things that female candidates have, you know, to, to, to contend with is the way in which that speech um, affects them in particular and the way in which perhaps particularly white women are held to a certain kind of idea of, of, of being unwomanly if they uh, break with, with, with a certain kind of decorum. I mean, the idea of the angry black woman has pretty significant historical roots and a lot of popular culture play. Um, so in, in a certain way, I think, you know, white women have a, a certain kind of additional problem. Black women have plenty of, of issues that they have to come up against. There's no question about that. But I do think the influence that Trump has had on sort of public speech cultures has, you know, produced the, the, this moment of, of incredible um, verbal hostility and crudeness. But also, and I really want to emphasize this, you know, disordered thought in which up is down and black is white and, you know, everything is the opposite of, of what it is. And I think, um, you know, any political candidate, you know, who can make their way through that thicket uh, is doing extremely well. What about Joe Biden, both as a candidate and in terms of his policy platform? Where is he drawing his strongest support from among women voters and why? For Trump supporters, overwhelmingly, they are enthusiastic about him as a candidate. And for Biden supporters, they're essentially their main focus, including many women, was getting rid of Donald Trump. So there isn't necessarily this enthusiasm for Biden per se, other than they desperately want the conversation to, to essentially not be about Donald Trump and to remove Trump from office. So I think that's kind of interesting to think about. But with respect to specific policies, again, I go back to health care. Um, women voters care disproportionately about health care. They are, the, the Sherry's noted, they're more likely disproportionately to be taking care of kids at home. Elder care also for many um, uh, middle-aged women is also something that is a, is a big concern. And so this is why Democrats were able to recapture the House in 2018. It's because you had moderate Democrats running in swing districts that really talked about health care reform. If I had to tell uh, Joe Biden what to prioritize, I would be saying health care and the, and the economy. Uh, we are in a really, really deep recession. Uh, really facing significant challenges that are not going to end when the pandemic ends. Thank you for listening to America Unfiltered. Be sure to follow us on your preferred platforms. Goodbye from me, Liam Kennedy in Dublin. <laughs>